Our family is not really what you would consider sportsy. Uh, it's fairly obvious in some different circumstances. We're clearly not in the majority on that. According to some people who decided to count for some reason, there are an estimated 8,000 sports played worldwide with some 200 of those recognized by some sort of international governing body. That's a lot of sports. Uh, but competition is not limited to sports. There are also spelling bees, competitive spelling, uh, competitive Latin exams. Some of you have done that. There's competitive speed sewing. I just wondered if there was, so I Googled it, and there were. I did not watch the YouTube videos about that yet, uh, but I am interested. Seems like something that my mom would be interested in, too, actually. Why do we like comp competition so much? I mean, 8,000 across that, that's not just a cultural thing. In one sense, you could say, like, oh, it's just an American thing. Americans are obsessed with sports. But 8,000 sports worldwide, that's not just a Western thing, that's not just an American thing, that's not just an Industrial Revolution thing. I mean, you put a ball in front of any kids, they're going to kick it, throw it, bounce it off their heads. They're going to do something worldwide. Uh, if you can't find a ball, they might make a ball, might just throw sticks. I'm not sure what all those 8,000 sports look like, but there's apparently something in us that loves some aspect of competition. And so I wonder why that is, and I think that it might be pointed to the fact that we love glory. We love it. We love earning glory. We love having glory. We love seeing it in others uh, as long as it's not at our expense, right? Like nobody wants to be dunked on, but yet we like watching somebody else get dunked on, right? We don't want to lose, but we don't want, mind watching somebody else lose because we love glory. We love that, that honor and that praise. Like we love being in awe of something with that or, or making others be in awe of us. So as I think over, maybe we could say human history, maybe that's too narrow of an aspect, but I think as we think of all of creation, there is a glory competition going on. There is a glory competition going on uh, in an ultimate sense. And while it may seem that there are many competitors, and indeed that there are, there are really two sides, and only two sides. There is God, and there is everything and everyone else. And those two things are competing for glory. Here's a fact that you may not know, very, very biblical, scriptural. Um, we have a lot of passages to go through today, so I'm not gonna turn to these. Did you know that God is jealous? When we think of jealousy, we think of that as being something that is negative. Well, God is not needlessly jealous for that which isn't his. That's sinful jealousy. Right, if you have something that's rightfully yours, and I crave it, and I, I want it, I have that strong desire for it, then we speak of that sinful jealousy or that type of envy. But if you seek to take something which is rightfully mine, then jealousy is the correct response. So in a sense, if somebody is trying to steal the affections of my wife, then I'm jealous toward that. Be like, Peter, you shouldn't be jealous. They'd say, no, no, no. Those affections are mine by covenant and right. They are not yours. Right? So there's that, there's that right jealousy. God is jealous like a husband for the affections of his people and really for his glory. He is righteously jealous for that which is his. God is jealous for his glory. He insists on winning the competition that is happening across the ages. Isaiah 42, 8, God expresses some aspect of this. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Israel, you can't say that that golden calf delivered you from Egypt because that's what I did. And I will not allow you to assign my greatness to some stupid statue. I did that. There are, if my search parameters were correct this week, 428 verses where some form of the word glory 
appears. Glory or glorious or gloriously or glorify. 428 times. My quick search was correct. That's roughly the same amount of times that variations of the word save or salvation occur throughout scripture. Glory. We're discussing the fifth and final sola this morning. If you're just joining us for uh, this little mini series that was five weeks now, six, and to be honest, I think we'll probably go at least into next week as well. Um, There are five pillars of what we would say constitute biblical Christianity, uh, condensed into Latin phrases, sola scriptura, scripture alone is our authority for what we believe and how we are to live in this world. Um, Grace alone is God's motivation and how he acts towards his people, sola gratia. Solus Christus, Christ alone is our only mediator and savior. Last week, sola fide, by faith alone, we are justified. Absolute exclusion of any of our works. And then the climax of that comes to this week, which is soli deo gloria. The glory of God alone alone is the ultimate purpose for and end of all things. Glory to God alone. Raises the question, doesn't it, what is glory? Glory is is fame. Glory is a high reputation. Glory is, is someone's name when that name is associated with a particular skill or field. Same as kind of reputation, right? Their, their, their fame. Michael Jordan with basketball. Michael Phelps with swimming. Paul McBeth with disc golf. You guys all know who Paul McBeth is, right? And we're going to get you on the disc golf train one way or another. But their names are associated with a particular skill in their field. And we could go far beyond just those few. Glory is being worthy of praise or worthy of honor, deserving to be celebrated or complimented and admired. Not someone begging for a compliment, but someone who just deserves it because of how great they are at whatever it is that they're doing. Glory is also majesty and magnificence and impressiveness. This could help us to think of a king or a queen dressed in their finest, decked out with all the royal jewels, and they display what? The glory of their kingdom. And then as they invite guests, their glory is displayed by how lavish is their castle, how generous they are toward their guests. Look at how glorious this king and this kingdom are. In scripture, when glory is made visible, when it enters into creation so that we could experience it in a sense, it appears as physical brightness or splendor or radiance Have you ever thought about the fact that there's something in us that's attracted to brightness? Uh, Brightness and light is attractive, but it's also dangerous. If something is shining with peculiar brightness, we want to see what it is that's producing that light. Oh, what is that? But yet if we look at it too long, it could damage our eyes to the point of blinding us. There's something attractive, but also Dangerous, like the sun shining at midday or the wonder of an eclipse. How many different news and weather people, the point of those different solar or lunar eclipses are like, right, you want to look at it, but don't stare right at it. It'll burn your retinas out. Like, oh, no, it won't. Yeah, it will. It's beautiful. It's attractive, but it's also dangerous. One author wrote that the word glory broadly captures the supremacy of God in everything. Another writer said, God's glory eminently reflects and reveals the perfection of all the attributes. He also said that God's glory is the infinite excellency of the divine essence. Like, what? God's glory is the infinite, the endless, right? excellency of the divine essence. What it means to be God. I'll unpack that in a little bit. When we consider God as he has revealed himself, if we're paying attention, we will be struck with the staggering wow-ness 
of God. I'm not a Puritan, so he says the infinite excellency of the divine essence, and I say, wow. <laughs> About as far as I can go on those things. Jaws dropped, minds blown, stunned to silence in awe and wonder at the godness of God, the glory of God. There's a fact to get us started off on this. When we think of soli deo gloria, we start off with the fact that God simply is glorious, as in God has glory. It's important for us to understand God is not made up of separate parts. You don't take a whole bunch of different things and add them up, and the sum of those things equal what our conception of God is. And we could peel or, or remove aspects of that. God is a perfect unity of all that he is. And his attributes, some of them, mercy, grace, love, justice, wrath, patience, wisdom, truth, so on. These are not just ways that he may or may not respond in certain scenarios. See, God doesn't just speak truth some of the time or most of the time or all of the time. See, God is truth. Like he's the definition of that. It is who he is. We may be truthful, we may not be truthful. God is truth. God doesn't just act justly most of the time. He is just, and he is grace, and he is love. As John wrote, God is love. That's not all that he is, but he is that. He is long-suffering and faithful and wise and all-knowing and all-powerful. These attributes are part of his nature, or that's what it said, his divine essence, which means it's that which it means to be God. We think of the nature of a human being. We could we get a picture in our mind of what a human being is as distinct from a, a dog or a horse or an oak tree. Each of those things have their own nature, that which makes up what it is. God's attributes make up consist of, in perfect unity, who and what he is. God is what his attributes are, it has been said. And just as God is love and God is wisdom, so God is glorious. It's an unchangeable fact of his existence. The Westminster Confession of Faith recognizes this when it says, God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, not deriving any glory from his creatures, but only manifesting his own glory in and by and unto and upon them. You're not trying to communicate something, throw some extra prepositions on there. You'll get there eventually. He, he has all glory in himself. He does not receive an increase in glory from any of his creatures. We mentioned that in that song, that unfathomable sea, everything flows from him. Nothing flows to increase or maintain him. Since God is unchangeable and perfect in every one of his attributes, I am the Lord, I do not change. So God is unchangeable. He's unchangeably and perfectly glorious. He does not lack glory ever. He cannot diminish in glory and he cannot increase in glory. You can't have something perfectly and increase in it. He never lacks, never diminishes, and he's not increasing. He has, is perfectly and unchangeably glorious. The Bible speaks in a number of those 428 passages of this fact of God's glory. Moses knew about the fact of God's glory, so he asked if he could see it. In Exodus 33, he said to God, please show me your glory. And God in his mercy said, you can't actually see that and live. But I'll let you see the, the back of it after it passes by. Psalm 29.3, the psalmist sees this as a fact, as an attribute of who God is, where he says, the God of glory thunders. God is Glorious. We need to have this firmly resolved in our minds as we think about and talk about soli deo gloria because that phrase is not a wish for something to happen. 
Soli Deo Gloria is not saying, you know what? God should get all glory. That's not what the phrase means. It's a statement of that which is, that God does get all glory. All glory does belong to him. And since God is glorious and all glory is God's, it makes sense that in all that he does, God glorifies himself. In all that he is and all that he does, God glorifies himself. God displays his glory in all his works, everything that he does. God is displaying his glory. And that's what it means when we're saying that he's glorifying himself. So in order for us to grasp soli deo gloria, we need to look at God's works. We need to look at the ways in which God has exhibited his glory to us. Now, we must pay careful attention as we do this because we can have a picture in our mind of that which God does, which is glorious. And then we could have in our mind the idea of things that are inglorious things. It's like, well, that, that's not glorious. These things are glorious, but these things are not glorious. But according to scripture, some apparently inglorious things are actually glorious. God is revealing himself as the glorious one behind all things, according to his word. As sola scriptura, where we started back at the beginning of August, scripture alone, as that that idea dictates to us, our comprehension of God's glory must come from and through his word. Not just like, oh, Peter says God is glorious. Who cares? Right? It's God in his word says that God is glorious. So we need to walk through his word, and we're going to walk through several passages, not all 428. Walk through several passages with you today to echo God's statements of his glorious ways. That's, that's our goal today. But before we do that, there are a few amazing passages that I want to guide us. If you can't transcribe all of them, try to get the references down. I'm mostly just say these. My intention is to walk through these without comment. Isaiah 48, 11. This is God speaking. He says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. So let us not assign to someone else that which is God's. Habakkuk 2.14, it is an amazing promise. This isn't the first time this phrase is, the only time this phrase is used in scripture, but God promises the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How much water is there in the sea? All of it is water. Do you see the expansiveness of this? It's amazing. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Love this answer. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Glory. In Romans eleven thirty three to 36, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him, back to him, are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Here's the main point, my thinking, as it comes to the glory of God. God's glory is on display wherever his sovereignty is exercised. 
God's glory is on display wherever his sovereignty is exercised, and his glory is not displayed accidentally. Right? I'm not a basketball player, but I could take a basketball and potentially make a half-court shot. Could happen. I'd be like, wow! They're like, well, yeah, but it's not really that impressive it was an accident, right? Far more impressive for the guy that could just hit it over and over and over again, right? It's really not that glorious if it was an accident. God's glory is not accidentally displayed. It's not a, it's not a secondary thing. It's not a byproduct of something else. God intentionally displays his glory in all that he does. The reason he does what he does is to display his glory on purpose. Keep that in mind as we consider these things. God glorifies himself. Well, where has God displayed his glory? In creation, in providence, in redemption, and in the coming consummation. These are the four things that will walk us through the rest of these. And in all of these things, all these four categories, and I think it covers everything, but if you can think of something that doesn't fall into one of those, then that too. In all of these things, God's glory hums and it pulses. At times it's, it whispers and at times it shouts that God is glorious. God glorifies himself in creation. This is really rather simple. Things exist now that did not previously exist. There was nothing. Now there's something because there's a glorious creator. God has glorified himself in creation. The glory of a powerful, wise, creative, eternal creator is revealed, the very fact of creation. And that creation declares something. Psalm 19.1, what do the heavens declare? The heavens declare the glory of God. There was a righteous man named Job that went through some horrible tests really to show that God is glorious. Job had some good questions, what he thought were really good questions, and he felt that he deserved an audience with God. And then when God appears to him in Job chapters 38 to 41, take some time to read through this, uh, God shows that he's not on the same plane as Job. It's not God and Job or God and Job. It's, it's God and wait, where did Job go? And so God asks these series of questions to show God, that the glory of God is not limited to the heavens or things in space. It's seen actually in the animal kingdom, especially in things that are not visible even to humans. Hey, do you know how this happens? Have you seen this take place in the ocean deeps? No. Do you know how they give birth? Do you know what they eat? No. Then keep your mouth shut. And Job's like, I do, I, yeah, I do want to keep my mouth shut. God is demonstrating that he has glorified himself. He's far wiser and he's greater than Job could ever have fathomed. God glorifies himself in creation. God also, <coughs> excuse me, God also glorifies himself in providence. By providence, I mean the flow of human history, the rise and fall of nations, and the lives of every individual human. Only a few passages I'm going to look at here. But in Daniel 4, for instance, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar ruled over the largest empire of that part of the world up to this point. And one day, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and he looks over the whole thing, and he says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Them are fighting words. He's putting himself up in competition with the one who is truly Glorious, A mere human king wants to flaunt his own glory, but God will not share his glory with another. So God reduced Nebuchadnezzar in body and mind to a wild beast for seven years. 
And here's how Nebuchadnezzar responded. At the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth, and you could hear myself included, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And Paul explains later in Acts 17, this isn't just true of Babylon in the first millennium BC, it's true of all times and places where he spoke to the Greeks in Athens and said that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And from that, he has determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Right? The map as it is right now, all those boundaries haven't always existed. Right? There are are battles and wars and, and treaties made that adjust all of these different things. But the timing and the rise and fall of the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the expanse of of the Holy Roman Empire, later than that, right? Then then, uh, Britain ruling over different things, right? The sun never sets on the rule of the British Empire. It's not what it once was. And the United States, in a sense, an, an empire over different things and on been on the rise. Where are we now? doesn't seem like we're on the rise anymore. God has dictated the exact terms and the duration of the rule of any people over any other people. And all of this is for his glory. And God glorifies himself, creation, providence, in redemption. The long story woven through scripture of God saving his people. 428 times. Do you know what the first reference is as you start reading through scripture? The first reference to God's glory in the Bible. Anybody? What book do you think it's in? Genesis, a good guess. Not right. I heard it. Exodus, good. It's the second book, so it's good to just start one and move on to the other. The first actual use of the word glory is in Exodus 14. This is the passage where it finds itself in. This is what the Lord said to Moses. Tell the people of Israel to turn back. This is after the 10 plagues. Like we read about the 10th plague coming this morning. After the 10 plagues, the people have left Egypt, triumph and deliverance. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back Encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. You know, between Migdal and the sea. In front of Baal-Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Go park yourself there where you can't get away. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. First reference. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You know how God got glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Part of the Red Sea, his people crossed on dry land. Pharaoh and his army chased in after them, and God drowned them in righteous, glorious judgment. First reference to God's glory was in the death of his enemies. See, I said some things that might seem, oh yeah, God does that, but let's tuck that to the side where God says, behold my glory. And his people were not ashamed of that. Matter of fact, they sing about it. In Exodus 15, after this tribe, they're on the other side. I mean, is, is armor washing up on the shore? I'm not sure exactly what this looked like, but they're celebrating. Moses sings to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. 
Then later Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron and Moses, they took, she took a tambourine in her hand. All the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. The first song of God's people praised him for his glory the glory of his wrathful judgment in drowning the Egyptian army and the glorious deliverance it brought to Israel. First song. The glory of God's wrath and judgment and the salvation it brought for his people. The glory of the Lord also appeared was manifested to his people Israel. Like in Exodus 24, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and a cloud covered it six days. This cloud that was the the physical manifestation of God's presence going on with them. No, God is not a cloud, right? But God manifested his presence in a cloud, following them through the wilderness. The seventh day, God called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And Moses tells us what it looks like. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Physical brightness and a terrifying fire and lightning and earthquake-ridden cloud. What what would that have? Can you imagine what that would have looked like? Attractive and terrifying. A few generations later, the promised land was conquered and settled. King Solomon built a temple for the Lord. In 2 Chronicles, Solomon prays to dedicate this temple to the Lord. And then in chapter 7, it says this, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, okay, do you picture this? King Solomon, right, decked out in his glory, with the priests decked out in their glory, according to the law, all the people watching everything that's taking place. It's a national celebration, the dedication of this huge and beautiful and glorious temple for the worship of the Lord. Solomon has prayed, everybody's watching, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We're going to fast forward quite a bit to the New Testament. The glory of God displayed in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 1, verse 14. John, close friend of Jesus, probably the closest friend of Jesus, and John records the Word who was with God, the Word who was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Only person this could be talking about is who? Christ, okay? The Word became flesh dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, who walked and served and ate with Jesus, said, I saw his glory as of the glory of God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Okay, think about something with me for a second. If you were blind, or if you wandered deep into a dark cave, or if you were dead, would the sun still be shining? Yes. The sun would continue shining as brightly as ever, uninterrupted. As tightly as you squeeze your eyes, do something horribly drastic, gouge your eyes out, hide in the depths of the earth, or even if it had nothing to do with your life whatsoever, the sun is still shining. You seeing or not seeing the brightness of the sun does not change the fact of its brightness. We see and feel or experience the the brightness or the energy of the sun as its rays travel to earth, That, that energy which radiates from the sun. It reaches us here and, and sustains Life, which is both attractive and 
dangerous radiance of the sun coming down to earth. We can learn something of Jesus by comparison to this. Jesus is not the same as that which radiates from the sun, right? Because then we're, we're making it a, too much of a distinction. Okay, so this is just a light analogy. Not, oh, Jesus is this, the Father is this, okay? That's not, that's not how the Trinity works. But we can learn something by illustration. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is God entering our world to display God's glory in our midst. You know, in John 2, at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, Jesus turned ordinary water into really delicious wine. And here's how John describes that miracle. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Manifested his glory. Showed it off. This, this is my glory. Jesus manifested or displayed his glory through all his miracles, thus glorifying himself and being glorified by the Father and the Holy Spirit. Luke 9, at the transfiguration, it says that as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. Peter, those who were with him, they had been heavy with sleep. Let's identify with Peter. He loved sleeping. I love sleeping. But when they became fully awake, they saw Jesus's glory. John wrote about that. That's what he's talking about. I've seen his glory. I saw Jesus shining brighter than the sun. The glory of God radiating out of him. Not reflecting off of him, radiating out of him. Peter writes about that as well. They saw his glory. In John 11, we read about Jesus' friend Lazarus who got really sick and he eventually died, was dead four days before Jesus got there. But at the beginning of the whole thing, excuse me, the beginning of that whole event, we ask, well, why did this need to happen? A lot of people are asking, like, well, why is this? The sisters, Lazarus' sisters, well, why, if you had been here, why did this need to happen? You can, you can heal from near, from afar. You can do anything you want, Jesus. Just Lazarus be healed, and, and he would have been healed. That's not what happened. Jesus did nothing. Jesus delayed his journey. Jesus allowed Lazarus's sickness to lead to his death. And he was prepared and wrapped for burial. He was placed in a tomb, and it was sealed. And then Jesus comes. But at the beginning of all this, they asked, well, what's going on? And Jesus said, why did this need to happen? He said, it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Which was more important, Lazarus's health and comfort or Jesus's glory? That applies to you and I as well, to you and me as well. You are not more important than God's glory. And neither am I. Jesus, the Son of God, was glorified through this event by raising Lazarus from the dead. Even in his death, Jesus displayed the glory of God. Luke 23, 47, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Other accounts add that he said, surely this was the son of God. What did that pagan Roman centurion mean? I don't know. Maybe he spoke better than he knew. But there's something about this that was different than the countless others that he had crucified in that very place, in that very cross. Something was different about this man, and it was to the glory of God. Even in his death, in his resurrection, Paul writes that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Have you, have you tracked with this so far? At every stage, and I've skipped several, at every stage so far, God's glory has been displayed. And not just in the physical aspects of his death and his resurrection is the glory of God displayed, but the, the spiritual realities of Jesus' death also display the glory of God. 
We discussed grace alone. We discussed faith alone. We emphasized our sinfulness and our unworthiness of anything good from God. Yet even as sinners, we can be declared righteous by faith for God justifies the ungodly. Yet one question that we didn't answer specifically, or maybe I, maybe I did, but said lots of stuff. How can God justify, declare righteous, those who are not righteous and remain righteous himself? Right? If I'm a judge, and I claim to be a righteous judge, and I look at someone who's clearly guilty, and I say, you are righteous, I can't be righteous and do that, right? Like, that's not being a good judge. So how can God remain righteous, right? God is justice. God is righteous. So how could he do something that's so unrighteous as declaring to be righteous those who aren't righteous? How can he do that and still be God? And Romans 3 tells us that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, right? The sacrifice, the redemption, the death of Jesus on the cross displays God's righteousness because in God's divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He didn't address them. Like, well, how... How was he still righteous by not punishing David for David's sins, for punishing Abraham for Abraham's sins, for punishing Moses for Moses' sins, Elijah? How could any of these sinners be welcomed into God's presence by their faith when nothing had ever been done to deal with their sin? Because in the future, at the cross, their sins would be dealt with. In his divine forbearance, God had passed over former sins, yet he showed his righteousness at the present time, at the cross, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How is it righteous for God to declare sinners to be righteous by their faith? Because of the righteousness of Jesus, which displays the glory of God, that he had a plan that he could rescue his people through the death of his son, and grant him that, them that righteousness simply by their faith. God's glory displayed in salvation. A few weeks ago, we discussed sola gratia, God's sovereign grace demonstrated in his free choice to save certain sinners. Election seen in the passage Ephesians chapter 1. Many struggle to accept the doctrine of election, but Paul is not one of them. He has no qualms about it. In Ephesians 1, Paul praises and blesses the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Doctrine of Election seen in grace alone points to the glory of God. There's a correlation to the doctrine of election that people really don't want to talk about. And it's the doctrine of reprobation. Reprobation seen in passages like Romans 9, where God freely chose to bless or love Jacob and freely chose to pass over or hate Esau. Here's how Paul summarizes this idea in Romans 9. Has the potter, it's God, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show, to display his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. 
Once again, the Westminster Confession of Faith spells this out very clearly for us. It says, by the decree of God, <clears throat> by the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, by the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life. Some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. And it goes on to say that those who are predestined to everlasting life are to the praise of his glorious grace. And then it says this, the rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures, he was willing to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. Do we only want to see God's glory displayed in good and happy things? But where did glory start out? Glory was first pronounced and celebrated over God's judgment over his enemies, and it continues to be. God's glory is on display wherever his sovereignty is exercised, and God intentionally displays his glory in all that he does. Ephesians 1, Solus Christus, Keith walked us through a number of passages with that. Christ alone magnifies the glory of God as well. Christ alone accomplished redemption through his blood, purchasing forgiveness of our trespasses. We have no other mediator. We need no other savior as to the glory of God. And there's the glory of the Holy Spirit's work in passages like Ephesians 1 or John chapter 3, among many. The Holy Spirit's sovereign work, calling the elect through the gospel, granting them spiritual life and regeneration. This work is like wind. We can't see it coming. We can't see it going. We can only see its effects, and its effects are faith and repentance. The effects of the Holy Spirit's work in us. And what does this display? It displays the glory of God in salvation. The regenerated repent and believe by the power of the Holy Spirit. We say, glory to God. God takes those justified, those who believe, excuse me, those who believe are given Christ's righteousness as a gift. By it are justified by faith alone. So we say, glory to God. Then God takes those justified, declared righteous sinners. He begins transforming them into the image of Christ, to which we say, glory to God. And one day, he'll complete the good work that he began in us. We will be changed into glorious, sinless saints. It's what we're looking forward to, the promise from Philippians 1. I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in, a, in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, to which we say, glory to God. God glorifies himself in creation, in providence, in redemption. He glorifies himself in the consummation. What we mean by that is the promised and long-awaited arrival of the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the person of Jesus Christ. That which we're looking forward to, the, the, that which our hope is centered on, a confident expectation that something is coming, that everything is leading to something else, and it's, to, it's the coming of Jesus to bring everything to its completion. passages like Luke chapter 9 and many others says that Christ will come in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Christ's return will be filled with glory and there will be a resurrection and gathering of all humanity and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To what end everybody? To the glory of God the Father. His people and his enemies, some willingly, some by threat of force or by, by, by force itself, everybody will recognize on their knees that Jesus Christ is the glorious God over all things. 
we, his people, will then partake of and share in his glory, and his enemies will be permanently and utterly defeated, displaying the glory of his wrath and his just judgment over sinners. As I consider the options, I see two, two paths, two, two options. I think you could say either God is responding in history by, by working to fix what accidentally or unavoidably broke, or God is acting in history to accomplish his ordained purposes. God is responding to the bad things which happened for, I don't know, some reason. Or God is acting according to his purposes to accomplish his will. Those are really the, I, I, I only see that those are the two options on these things. And I cannot look at scripture from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, the garden through the cross and the empty tomb to the new heavens and the earth, new earth, I cannot look at scripture and see anything other than God sovereignly acting to accomplish his eternal purposes for his glory. I can't see anything else. I don't know how anybody can see anything else. It's sola scriptura, it's sola gratia, and solus Christus, and sola fide, along with the doctrines of grace that I think flow out of those things, the reality of our total depravity, God's gracious and unconditional election, the particular redemption or limited atonement that Jesus made to pay for the sins of his people, the irresistible grace or effectual call where the Holy Spirit doesn't just wait for us to come, but through the preaching of the gospel comes and brings us to new life. And then his keeping us and growing us in the perseverance of the saints. These are not matters of philosophical speculation or theological nitpicking. We at Risen King Church, and it's not unique to us, but we believe and proclaim these things as gospel truths because we have come to see and submit to and delight in the absolute sovereignty of God in everything. That has changed our whole perspective on the Bible, on the gospel, on the world, on eternity. It has shifted our focus away from us and from other secondary, lesser purposes and lesser things. Shifted our focus away from that to see that there is one ultimate purpose for and end of all things. And it is soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. Father, you are glorious. No song, no sermon can add to your glory. Just seek to, to say what's there, to show what you have shown us. All glory is yours. All glory will be yours. Please open our eyes to see that glorious truth, the truth of your glory, seen so clearly in, in Jesus Christ, your treatment of sinners. We praise you, our glorious God. Amen.